Thank you for accessing this audio resource from Glad Tidings Church. This is Pastor Tim Rice. I hope you enjoy the message and receive some benefit from it. If you do, please let us know. Send your comments to info at gladtidings.church. Now, here's this week's message. All right, well, next week actually is, is Holy Week, uh, but this week what I want to do is I want to take a few minutes and I'm going to speak for a, a little while about the sacrifice that, Jeru- that Jesus made in Jerusalem on that week, on Holy Week. So this is not Holy Week, uh, but I want to talk about the sacrifice that Jesus made during Holy Week, of obviously his, his crucifixion. Specifically, what I want to do tonight is I want to emphasize that it was, um, that it was one sacrifice it was one sacrifice that Jesus made once and for all. Aren't you glad for that? So Jesus made one sacrifice once and for all. Currently, uh, I'm reading through the book of uh, the book of Leviticus, and as you as you might know, you probably know it can it can be a challenge to read through the book of Leviticus. Um, uh, it's, it's more or less, the book of Leviticus is more or less, it's a handbook for the Levitical priesthood, the sacrifices that had to be made, the rules and the regulations that had to be enforced, what they could eat, what they, what they couldn't eat, what they could wear, what they couldn't, uh, what they could wear, what they couldn't wear. And so there's lots of rules and there's lots of regulations and there's a, there's a lot of minutiae that are just that are related to dietary restrictions, sacrifices that need to be made, and um, you know how you determine if somebody has a skin disease or whether it's natural or what you do if you find fungus in your house. And so, how many you've read through the Book of Leviticus? You know what I'm talking about. It can sometimes. I mean, I hate to say this about any part of the Bible, but let's be honest, it can be Leviticus can be dry reading sometimes. And can be difficult um, reading. In fact, you might wonder, uh, why should we read the book of Leviticus? Hasn't, you might wonder, hasn't the New Testament made parts of the Old Testament obsolete? And if they're obsolete, then why should we read them? I mean, that's what Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13 seems to indicate this is what that says Hebrews 8:13 says in speaking of a new covenant he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away and so the new covenant the new hasn't the new testament made parts of the old testament obsolete it's old and it's it's fading away so what's the point of reading about a system of sacrifices, and what's the point about reading uh, uh, about religious rules and restrictions and dietary laws and those sort of things, those things that no longer apply to us. Well, uh, there probably are several good reasons to read the book of Leviticus. I want to just suggest to you three real quick, and then we're going to talk about Jesus' sacrifice and how it relates to Leviticus, okay? So three reasons why uh, we ought to read the book of Leviticus. Number one, um, when we read about those rules and those restrictions and the sacrifices and the offerings, those things communicate to us uh, the, the incomparable, perfect holiness 
of God. So when we read about those restrictions, what, we, what we're doing is we are getting a picture and understanding how important the holiness of God really, really is. I remember watching a documentary one time about the royal family. And uh, sometimes I go to bed, I'll flip on the TV and just let it play so I can fall asleep. And I remember seeing this documentary one time. I think it was about, um, it was actually about one of the residents. I think it was inside Windsor Castle, which is one of their royal residents. And so it was, it was going inside Windsor Castle and it was talking about how it operates and, and the people that work there and, and everything that goes on behind the scenes. And as I watched that documentary, I was struck with, with all of the precision and all of the protocol uh, that was required when somebody was in the presence of the royal family. I mean, everything has to be perfect. I mean, the, the candles, I remember you know, them talking about the candles. They had to be trimmed in a certain way. They had to be made of a certain material. They had to be kept in a certain way. The silverware had to be polished. And, and when they set the table, um, they had somebody that went by. It wasn't just... Uh, you know, throw paper plates on the table and plastic forks like might pass at my house or your house. Uh, they had to be set in a certain way. And then somebody actually came by and measured between the, the silverware to make sure that it was the proper distance apart from the plate and everything. So everything was precise. Everything had to be perfect. And, and when somebody goes into their presence, it talks about the servants. You know, some servants aren't even allowed around the royal family. And others that are in the presence of the royal family, they have to observe strict protocol when they're in the presence of the royal family. You know, they have to bow and they have to back away from them. They can't turn their backs to them. They have to bow to them. In other words, so there's a whole lot of rules and restrictions that, uh, that govern how people conduct themselves in the presence of the royal family. Everything has to conform to a, to a perfect set of standards. Everyone has to perform up to uh, expectations. And here's the point. The precision and the protocol uh, that are enforced when people are around the royal family, it's, it's intended to communicate that the royal family are, well, they're, they're royal, <laughs> And that they are important, that they're exceedingly important. They're royal and they, and they deserve to be esteemed and venerated by anyone who's around them, anyone who, who approaches them. And so to emphasize that, there's precise rules and restrictions and protocol uh, that is in place. And, and so um, when you read about all of the rules and the restrictions in the book of Leviticus, um, we should, we should say to ourselves, listen, if, if human kings and queens demand that kind of respect, how much more respect uh, should God expect, um, the creator of heaven and earth? And, and that's one of the benefits, actually, of, of reading the book of Leviticus. It reminds us that God is God and that he is transcendent, that he is omnipotent and that he is eternal and that he dwells the bible says that he dwells in unapproachable light and no man the bible says no man has seen uh, god because of his transcendent holiness and despite our attempts sometimes we want to make god 
just like one of us, right? And so we try to make him relevant and relatable so that we can relate uh, to God. And despite our attempts to do that, how many knows he is not like one of us? That he, that he is God. He is an awesome God. He is a holy God. And he is the God who in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2 says, You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So he is a holy God. And when we read the book of Leviticus, the regulations, the requirements, the, the precise instructions and the regulations that we see there underscore the fact that God is holy and that he has, he has to make accommodation to us. That if, for us to even be able to approach him at all and call on him, that, that he has to make accommodation to us. So that's one of the benefits of reading Leviticus is it just it underscores the holiness and the majesty, the transcendence. Of, of Almighty God. Second reason why it's good to read the book of Leviticus is because those rules and the regulations, the sacrifices and everything, those things demonstrate our desperate need for a Savior, that we are desperately in need of a Savior. Leviticus not only communicates how holy God is, it demonstrates how unholy we, we actually are. In fact, in Leviticus, God describes the the rituals, uh, the rules, the restrictions, the regulations that are required of us just as a baseline for us to even be able to um, worship him and even be able to fellowship with him. Um, and yet, and here's the thing, and yet God knew that we would never be able to keep all of those rules and all of those restrictions in fact, here's a misunderstanding that people have about the Old Testament law and about the rules there and the sacrifices. The Old Testament law was never intended as a means of justification. It was, it was never intended as a means of justification. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Why does Paul say through the law nobody will be justified? Well, it's, it's because, number one, nobody will ever be able to keep the law. Nobody is ever able to fulfill all of the rules and all of the restrictions of the law. But what the law does is that it reminds us of our need for salvation, that God is holy perfectly holy and transcendent, unapproachable, and that we are unholy, that we're, we're not able to keep the law, and that we are not worthy to even be able to approach him. And the law cannot save us from sin because the only thing the law can do is, is show us our sin can only demonstrate that we are sinners. In fact, in Galatians, Paul refers to the law as a harsh schoolmaster or as a, as a guardian that keeps us in bondage because we cannot hope, we cannot hope to meet the requirements of the law. Therefore, we're always kept under condemnation by the law. 
Because if you offend in one point, Paul says, then you've offended in everything. So the law provides no hope for us that, that we can actually abide by the law. It only shows us how desperately we need somebody to save us from our own sin and from our own wickedness. And so for that, help, for that reason, it's helpful for us actually to read the book of Leviticus because it reminds us that no matter how good we think that we are, we can compare ourselves to other people and say, well, I'm, I do better than that person. I live better than that person. At least I'm not like that. At least I don't do this. But reading the book of Leviticus and all of its rules and regulations reminds us that no matter how good we might think we are, we are all sinners. <laughs> we are all sinners because if we have offended in one point of the law, then, then we have offended in everything. So reading the book of Leviticus reminds us of our desperate need for salvation, that we need somebody to save us from ourselves. And then number three, reading the book of Leviticus is helpful because all of the rules and the restrictions that we see in the book of Leviticus, those things illustrate for us the amazing work of grace that God has done for us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Leviticus communicates the holiness of God, reminds us how holy and how transcendent he is. It, it um, reveals to us, it reminds us that we are desperately in need of a Savior, that we are not able to keep the law for ourselves. But it also illustrates for us that the amazing work of grace that God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Because when we understand the holy expectations of a righteous God, remember he said, you be holy because I am holy. So when we, when we understand his expectations, when we recognize our complete inability to keep those commandments, then we are better able to appreciate what Jesus Christ has done for us on Calvary, that he has made it possible for us to be holy. Not because we can observe the law and keep the law, but because of his sacrifice, now we are able to have a relationship with God because God's word says that with one sacrifice, Jesus satisfied all of those requirements once and for all. Now, friends, that's, that's good news. Can you say amen? That with one sacrifice, Jesus satisfied all of those requirements, and he did it for all of us. He did it once, and he did it for all. Let's read about it in Hebrews. Now we're going to read Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to read uh, 14 verses, starting in verse number 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, uh, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you, take, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8, And when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, And every high priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Amen? Now, from this passage, we see that the purpose of the law is not, as I said earlier, the purpose of the law is not to justify anyone. The law fails to do this in, in two significant ways, okay? Number one, first, it is impossible, and I've already said this, it's impossible for anybody to keep the law anyway. So it's impossible to be justified by the law because it's impossible for anybody to keep uh, the law. Nobody can obey the law perfectly. And then second, the law is not able to justify anyone because not only is no one able to keep the law, second of all, the sacrifices that the law requires, the Bible says, are unable to perfect anyone who does offer those uh, sacrifices. In fact, verse number two says that if the sacrifices were able to cleanse those who made those sacrifices, that there would no longer remain a consciousness of sins. In other words, uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying uh, even the sacrifices that the law prescribes, they don't cleanse anyone. They're, they're not effective because if they were effective, then it would remove sin. And we would not have that sin problem in our life anymore. However, as it is... It says that there is a reminder with every sacrifice, there is a reminder of sin every year. Every time that sacrifice is made, there's a reminder that why? That we have to offer this sacrifice because why? We are sinners. And so it goes back to what I said earlier. We read Leviticus because it reminds us we need a Savior. <laughs> not, not because those sacrifices can save us, but it reminds us we need a Savior because we are hopelessly lost in, in our sin. So there is a reminder of sin. This is because, again, the law, the only thing the law can do is show us our sin. It, the only thing it can do is demonstrate that we are sinners. It cannot save us from our sin. And so for that reason, the writer of Hebrews makes uh, makes an astonishing point. He says that God is not desired, nor does God take pleasure in sacrifices and in offerings, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, although, as he points out, 
These sacrifices are all offered, how? According to the law. In other words, God has said in the book of Leviticus and in the law, God has prescribed these sacrifices, and yet these sacrifices do not take away sin. They can't remove sin. They can't deal with our sin problem. And what's more, for that reason, God doesn't really desire animal sacrifices. It's not that God wants those animal sacrifices. In fact, in in making that point, the, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 40, where God says, I don't desire. It's actually a messianic psalm uh, that, that uh, Hebrews is quoting here, where Jesus is saying, sacrifices you don't desire. You didn't desire the blood of bulls and goats. That was not God's intention. So, so the question then is, so why did God require them? Why did God require those sacrifices And the answer is in verse number one. The answer is because the law, those sacrifices that God required, those are but a shadow of the things to come. The sacrifices that God requires in the Old Testament are just a shadow of the things that are to come. They're a type of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make. The sacrifices and offerings in the book of Leviticus and in the law demonstrate our need for a Savior, but they also illustrate the great work of salvation that God has accomplished for us through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All of the rules and all of the regulations, the sacrifices and the offerings that are contained in the book of Leviticus, as well as the other books of the law, all of those things are just types and examples that are intended to point us to Jesus Christ and his work and what he has accomplished. The only one who is able to fulfill the law perfectly, the only one who is able to obey the law and whose sacrifice is able to make us perfect as saints and cleanse us from sins. Again, Jesus accomplished with one sacrifice once and for all everything that is pictured in all of the sacrifices and all of the rules and all of the regulations in the Old Testament. And in fact, the book of Leviticus contains five main sacrifices and, and offerings. There, there are many other smaller offerings and, and uh, oblations that they can make, but most of those are just um, subcategories of these five main offerings. And each one of these offerings, each one of those five offerings that are talked about in the book of Leviticus, each one is, a sim- is symbolic of some important aspect of the actual sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. This is, listen, this is how Raymond Campbell puts it. He said, in these five offerings, he's talking about the five offerings of the book of Leviticus. In these five offerings, we have a most wonderful presentation of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the true Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. 
All of these offerings, offerings taken together give us a full view of Christ and his great sacrificial work on the cross of Calvary. He says, they are like so many mirrors arranged around the Lord and the cross so that each one reflects a special view of his person and his work. Isn't that a great way to think of those sacrifices that we read about in the book of Leviticus, that each one is a mirror that is pointing us to some aspect of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made for us so that we can understand it and see what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So when we read Leviticus and we're tempted to see condemnation and we're tempted to feel guilt for our sin, instead we can see the love and the grace of Jesus Christ and what he has done what he has done for us through his one sacrifice. So we don't have time to do a full study of each one of those um, five sacrifices, but I thought what we would do tonight very quickly before we close is we're going to look briefly at each one of those five sacrifices and, and show how they relate to what Jesus Christ has done for us, how Jesus Christ uniquely fulfilled each one of those five sacrifices, okay? Uh, so number one, first off, uh, the first sacrifice that is mentioned in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter one, is the burnt offering, the whole burnt offering. Now the whole burnt offering was an animal sacrifice, uh, and it was an animal sacrifice in which uh, the entirety of the animal was fully consumed by flame. The entire animal was fully uh, burned up. And this sacrifice, as such, it represents, it indicates entire surrender, entire dedication to God. The entire animal, the entire body was completely devoted to God. And so it was completely consumed uh, on the altar. And this sacrifice is fulfilled by Christ in that Jesus Christ gave himself completely to the will of God. Of God, completely to the will of God. In fact, if you still have your Bibles open to, Matt, uh, to Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse number 7 once more. Then I said, and again, this is Jesus um, speaking. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Let's continue, verse number 8. And when he said, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Uh, even though these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. So he does away with the first in order to establish uh, the second. So Jesus Christ came and he said to what? He came to completely dedicate himself to the will of God. The Bible says um, that, that the people in, during the ministry of Jesus said of him, observed of him, that he was consumed by a zeal for the house of God. That mean, meant he was completely dedicated, 100% sold out to do the will of God the Father. Jesus fulfilled this sacrifice by being completely dedicated to the will of God. Now, due to our sin nature, how many knows it's impossible for us to be 
wholly dedicated to God because of our sin nature. We, there's no way that we could, that's why God had to send Jesus Christ because there was no way that we could reach out to him. Um, uh, we, can, we continually present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, but because of our sin nature, there will always be that division inside of us. And so Jesus Christ came and fulfilled for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And now we are, we are committed to God to the extent that we are trusting in Jesus Christ. It's not our works. It's not our ability. It's in our ability to trust and have faith in Jesus Christ that we are able to abide in God. So Jesus Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He was completely devoted to the will of God. Offering our sacrifice number two is the meal. The meal sacrifice the, or the meal offering. This is, this is the only sacrifice that is a non-animal sacrifice. It was flour and meal and it was also sprinkled with fragrant uh, uh, incense and it was an offering that was designed that, to indicate worship and obedience to God. In fact, the Bible says that it was a pleasing aroma. When it was offered, it was a pleasing aroma uh, to God. So the meal sacrifice or the meal offering is an offering of worship and obedience, complete obedience to God. And this sacrifice was fulfilled by Christ in that he lived Jesus Christ lived in perfect communion with God and in complete obedience to the Father. In fact, you might remember that uh, on one occasion the disciples went into the, um, went into the village to buy bread. Remember that? And they came back and they thought that Jesus had eaten something. They said, Did he, does he have bread that we don't know about? And Jesus said, what? My bread, my food is to do what? is to do the will of the Father. And so Jesus fulfilled this sacrifice in always, always doing the will of the Father, always being in constant communion with God the Father. You remember on the, um, during the transfiguration that the Father said of the Son, he said, this is my Son in whom I am what? Well pleased. Jesus was the sacrifice in whom God the Father was well pleased. And he said on that occasion, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So we learn to obey God by listening to the words of Jesus Christ. And how many knows we should be not just hearers of the word, but we need to be doers of the word. But Jesus fulfilled that offering by perfectly obeying God the Father being in constant communion with God the Father. Number three, the third sacrifice is the peace offering. The peace offering. This is Leviticus chapter 3. The peace offering was also an animal sacrifice, but this was the only animal sacrifice in which the flesh was burned. It was accepted by God, but it was also eaten by the Levite priest and the worshiper. If the worshiper came and it was a free will offering of the worshiper, he presented a lamb or a bull uh, for this peace offering, then it was also eaten by the worshiper. So it was flesh that was, that was enjoyed 
by God the Father, and it was also enjoyed by the, per, by the person that brought the sacrifice. And so it was a peace uh, offering. And so it indicates fellowship with God, relationship with God. And Jesus fulfilled this offering in that through his body and through his sacrifice, the Bible says he made peace with God for us through his own body. In fact, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at this, these verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number, let's see, 13. Well, let's back up and, and uh, read verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus fulfilled the peace offering in that through his body, in his body, he has made peace with God available to each one of us. Aren't you thankful that we can have peace with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? If you are, say amen. 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 Number four, the fourth sacrifice is the sin offering. This is Leviticus chapter 4. This is also an animal sacrifice. Unlike the other sacrifices, however, this is not a voluntary sacrifice. This is a mandatory sacrifice. And as the name implies, it was a sacrifice that was required for the appeasement or for the satisfaction of sin. It was God's, it was, it was practiced as God's judgment upon sin. It was God's punishment upon sin. And Jesus fulfilled this sacrifice uniquely on the cross by becoming, by becoming, and the Bible says that he actually became sin for us on our behalf when he was on the cross. And on the cross, he bore the wrath of God against the sins of the world. He's talked about in Isaiah chapter 53 verses, well, in the entire chapter makes reference to it, but in Isaiah chapter 53, um, the Bible says that we considered him, what, smitten, stricken by God because he bore, on the cross, he bore our sins and our infirmities. Jesus became that sin offering for us so that our sins could be appeased and propitiated. And then number five, the last one, is the trespass offering or the trespass sacrifice. The trespass offering is similar to the sin offering. However, its focus is on 
individual sins that have been committed by a particular person. And so it, it adds also the idea of restoration to it, retribution, that our sins can be forgiven and so that we can be restored into a right relationship with God. And Christ fulfilled this sacrifice by paying for the penalty of sin. He suffered the wrath of God upon sin. And he also died so that our individual sins might be forgiven. And he redeems us from the power of sin. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. That is, so that you could be released from the penalty of sin. But not just life, but that you might have abundant life. So he sets us free not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin as well in, in our own lives. And so through him, we receive the forgiveness for our individual trespasses and sins. So no longer, no longer do we have to offer the blood of bulls and goats. Aren't you thankful for that? I'm thankful for that. <laughs> No longer do we have to offer the blood of bulls and goats because Christ satisfied all of those sacrifices, all five of them, with one sacrifice, once and for all. Now, does that mean that there are no sacrifices that we can make? Well, not exactly. God's Word does say that He prefers mercy over sacrifice, but the Bible also says that He does uh, take delight in certain sacrifices that we that we can make for instance in Psalm chapter 51 uh, I think it's verse number 17 in his prayer this is David's prayer of repentance after his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah her husband in that prayer uh, David says for you will not delight in a sacrifice again you don't you don't desire a burnt offering or a sin offering. You do not de delight, uh, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And then David says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Also in Hebrews, later in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, it says, through him, that is, through Jesus Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of, of our lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So thankfully, uh, we no longer have to sacrifice bulls and goats and lambs or pigeons. Uh, we no longer have to sacrifice those things for the forgiveness of our sins, for the restoration of our fellowship with God. Uh, the truth is that system never worked anyway. And that's what God's Word says. It was not designed for that purpose. It was designed to show us the work of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, what he has accomplished with one sacrifice once and for all. So now all that's required of us, the sac only sacrifices we must make are the sacrifice of genuine repentance for our sins. 
And we come to him and we confess our sins, just like David did. And we repent with a broken heart. That's the kind of sacrifice that God sees. And then we receive his grace and we enjoy his grace by faith in Christ. And we express our thanksgiving and our worship and our praise to God for what he has done for us through the sacrifice of our lips as we praise God and through the good works that we do that follow those who believe on Jesus Christ. I believe that's a good deal, don't you? <laughs> that Jesus Christ has paid the price for us with one sacrifice. He's taken care of all of those rules, all of those regulations, all of those requirements, all of those sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. And all we have to do now is come to him in genuine repentance and in genuine praise and thanksgiving to God for what Jesus Christ has done for us. Thank you for listening today. If you have any questions or would like more information about following Jesus Christ, please contact us at gladtidings.church. If you live near Dunn, North Carolina, please consider visiting our church on Sunday mornings at 1030. You can also download our church app in the iTunes or Google Play App Store and receive updates and notifications. You may use the app to make a financial gift to help support our ministry. God bless you.